This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Israeli forces have killed nine Palestinians during a military raid in the occupied West Bank in the deadliest single day in the territory in years. Israel says the operation in the city of Jenin was targeting terrorists, but Palestinian authorities are calling it a massacre. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn reports from Jerusalem. An early morning raid by Israeli soldiers storming the Palestinian city of Jenin. Israel says it was acting to foil planned terrorist attacks by the Palestinian militant group Islamic Jihad. A deadly battle erupted when Palestinian resistance fighters confronted the Israeli forces. Mahmoud al-Sadi from the Red Crescent Medical Service says scores more were seriously hurt. There's a huge number of injuries. We have never seen such an invasion before. There is damage and injuries. During the operation, Israel fired explosives into a building, killing several people, and used a bulldozer to demolish the Janine Sports Club. This taxi driver was outside. Our buddy Fayez was inside his car. They removed the car with him and threw the car on others. He was shouting, but we couldn't react as the army's jeep was here and the bulldozer was smashing cars. Palestinian health officials claim the army blocked ambulances carrying the wounded and hit a children's hospital ward with tear gas. Israel hasn't commented on the accusation, but the National Security Minister Itmar Ben-Gavir praised his operatives. I want to congratulate the police special unit, the Israel Defence Forces and Shin Bet Forces who carried out a successful operation tonight. We give our backing to the fighters in the war against the terrorists. Angry demonstrations have been held across the West Bank with warnings the military escalation threatens to erupt a new cycle of violence. Militant groups Hamas and Islamic Jihad are considering retaliation and the Palestinian authorities Nabil Abu Radina says they're cutting security ties with Israel and has called on the international community to impose sanctions. In light of the repeated aggression against our people and the disregard for the signed agreements, including security ones, we consider that security coordination with the Israeli occupation government no longer exists as of now. Tensions between Israelis and Palestinians are already at a decades-long high. This year alone, authorities say 29 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces. And as the dead in Janine are buried, the region remains on the edge of a dangerous new chapter in this decades-long conflict. This is Alison Horn in Jerusalem reporting for AM. Ukrainians have suffered another deadly barrage from Russian missile strikes and self-exploding drones. Residential areas and energy infrastructure in almost a dozen regions were targeted. It comes a day after Germany and the US pledged to send tanks to Ukraine, as Alexandra Humphreys reports. The onslaught came during morning rush hour. 67-year-old Helena Panossian's home near Kyiv has been reduced to rubble. 
This is such a tragedy for me. I'm telling you, I'm left without anything. What else can I say? This is such a disaster. I'm struggling so much. How could they? Everything was destroyed. Not a single room is left intact. Everything got hit. She describes the moment the blast hit. At first I heard a roar, and then there was an extremely loud strike that made me jump up. I was in the bedroom. I was saved by the fact the bedroom is to the other side of the house. Her neighbour, 70-year-old Valentina, also managed to survive. I got out of the house walking over glass splinters. Then I pulled glass splinters out of one foot. I got high blood pressure and medical workers gave me an injection. I don't know, I don't remember how I got out of the house. Everything was in rubble. The fresh round of deadly attacks has also damaged infrastructure on the Black Sea in Odessa. Russia has confirmed it was targeting energy facilities, aiming to deprive Ukrainians of light and heating. The temperature in Kyiv is below freezing. Air raid sirens bellowed as civilians streamed into subway stations, underground car parks and basements for shelter. This man works at a metal plant in the Kyiv area, close to critical power infrastructure. My hearing has not been perfect for a while, but after this, I've gone completely deaf. All I hear is a whistling sound in my ears. I cannot bloody hear anything. He managed to shelter from the strikes, but witnessed others who could not. A blast wave hit them. They were in an open space. We ourselves were behind a truck, so had a bit of protection, so we were not hurt. They were hurt. One man was killed and two have been injured. Air defences shot down 47 of 55 missiles. 20 of those were downed in the vicinity of Kyiv. The attacks come just a day after Germany announced it would supply Ukraine with 14 high-tech Leopard 2 battle tanks and authorise other European countries to send up to 88 more. The United States is planning to ship 31 Abrams M1 tanks as well. Britain, Poland, the Netherlands and Sweden are among the nations that have sent or announced plans to supply hundreds of tanks and heavy armoured vehicles in support of Ukraine. Alexandra Humphreys reporting. With the violence and challenges facing Alice Springs capturing national attention, some tourism operators in the central Australian town are nervous. They want assurances the town will be safe ahead of the peak winter travel season. But as Oliver Gordon reports, one Aboriginal elder says the focus should be on helping young Indigenous people. Most mornings, Camelier Marcus Williams watches the sunrise from the back of a camel. We see kangaroos pretty almost every tour. Um, at the moment, we call it the Green Centre because of all the rain we've had recently. It's a very peaceful sort of way to see Central Australia's on the back of a camel. The Alice Springs business owner had a good year last year, but he's hoping the recent headlines about the town don't impact his camel ride business. To have people that are frightened to come here is is bad. You know, that's not. You know, people want to enjoy their holiday. They don't want to be sort of frightened to park their car out the front of the. Um, you know, the hotel in town. In recent days, he's been on the phone, reassuring people it's OK to travel to Central Australia. Well, I've had one tour operator check in with me, and that was um, yesterday. And he was just concerned about, you know, the safety of his clients coming to Central Australia. And I assured him that, that it is very safe. The Camelot was glad to see the Prime Minister in town this week and hopes it will lead to reduced crime. People empowered need to start act- acting on 
on this issue right now and not talk about it for the next six months or 12 months or whatever, you know. We are approaching the tourist season. It may very well have a very negative effect on the tourist industry. Not all tourism operators are concerned about a potential downturn. Rex Neindorf runs a reptile centre in Alice Springs. There's still plenty of people who want to come up. He hopes those thinking about visiting the Alice don't cancel their plans. There's problems and there is everything that goes on, but in reality, it shouldn't stop you from from travelling up our way. As the crime wave continues to dominate discussions in the outback town, senior Arunda and Amadra elder Pat Ansel Dodds says visitors are the last thing on her mind. The tourist is not my concern. Bad people come and go here. I'm from here. She says if the town is to become safer, young Indigenous people need to be provided with more opportunities to get out bush. And they need to go back homeland. They are angry with life and their parents have to start looking after them. Alcohol is only one thing. It's a bigger picture. Going home to your own country, that's our way of healing each other. Not stuck in a town. As the town works out what to do next, she says it's important elders like her are listened to. Let us have a voice. We have connections to country that's been there for thousands of years. Give us the chance, give them, these young people, a chance to go back on country. Alice Springs resident Pat Ansel Dodds ending Oliver Gordon's report. Australian farmers are hoping that the free trade deal with the UK will finally be finished by the end of March. It's cleared Australia's parliament, but it's taking longer to get the green light in the UK, where there have been concerns about cheaper Aussie produce flooding the market. Political reporter Noor Hader has more. It's been more than a year since two now former Prime Ministers reached an agreement on a free trade deal between Australia and the UK. Thanks to this, uh, this deal... Uh, We hope that there will be uh, even more uh, trade between the UK and Australia. And the the broad outlines of the deal, as you can imagine, is that uh, uh, you give us Tim Tams, we give you you penguins. uh, uh, That was Boris Johnson standing alongside Scott Morrison back in 2021. The Australian Parliament has since ratified the deal, but that's yet to happen in the UK. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt recently travelled to London to spruik the deal and tried to convince the UK Parliament to pass the necessary legislation. He was accompanied by the President of the National Farmers Federation, Fiona Simpson. We are hopeful now that the bill is on track and the agreement is on track to be finalised by uh, the end of March. British farm groups have been nervous about the impending deal, raising concerns about Australian farm practices and animal welfare standards. Fiona Simpson met with local farmers while in the UK to try to allay those concerns. We don't need regulations here in Australia about the length of time that animals must be exposed to sunlight, for example, because ours generally roam around out on the grass anyway. We have different appropriate uh, regulations in relation to animal welfare and also to, to the way that we farm, the use of our chemicals on farms strictly governed by uh, APVMA and independent bodies. Once in force, the deal will eliminate or phase out tariffs on a vast range of Australian exports, including lamb, beef, sugar and 
secondary. At the end of the day, when we talked to the to the House of Lords committee and the relevant decision makers, uh, they were satisfied. And really, it does look like it's all systems go to have this agreement finalised and to hopefully see some of the major wins that are going to re- to result from this agreement. Tony Seabrook is the president of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association of Western Australia. Access to markets is crucial to agriculture across the whole breadth of Australia. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're producing dried fruit, prime lamb, uh, wool, whatever. Uh, these marketplaces are crucial to us. We just need every market. We need to diversify and uh, our reliance on China uh, burned us very badly. He says producers are ready to make the most of the deal if and when it's finalised. I can't recall ever having uh, not had product to supply um, and obviously the higher price markets will always attract product and uh, Europe and Great Britain have always been top end of the, of the market when it comes down to paying the price and uh, I think we're as prepared as we can possibly be. Tony Seabrook from the Pastoralists and Graziers Association of Western Australia ending Nor Hater's report. Most of us know that seaweed is used for sushi and other food, but what if seaweed farming could be expanded, potentially replacing other crops? New research suggests that boosting the amount of seaweed that humans and animals eat could spare more than 100 million acres of land from being farmed, helping to tackle biodiversity loss and climate change along the way. Annie Guest reports. Seaweed has shown promise in biofuel, plastics and animal food, including for Richard Gardner's Tasmanian dairy herd. There's a great opportunity in terms of um, removing CO2 from the atmosphere by growing of the seaweed and then using it to feed cattle to reduce methane emissions. Farmers might also save money because it's possible cattle and sheep eating seaweed need less other food. Compounds in the seaweed change the way the fermentation process happens in the, um, in the gut of the, of the animals. We're trying to prove up how much less feed do we have to feed the animals to produce the same amount of product. And any opportunity we have um, to expand the seaweed industry, I reckon, is fabulous. Expanding the seaweed industry is the focus of an Australian-led study published today in Nature Sustainability. Scott Spilius from the University of Queensland is the lead author. So what we found is that if every person on Earth were to consume seaweed as roughly 10% of their diets, then we'd need 110 million hectares less land, uh, farmland, in order to, um, and to meet those, the demands. The researchers' mathematical modelling found the agricultural emissions saved would equate to two and a half billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent a year. So we would um, obviously avoid converting land to farmland, which could be good for biodiversity. Um, We'd also avoid a lot of carbon emissions, a lot of water use, fertiliser use, um, things like that. They modelled the potential of large-scale cultivation of the 34 already commercially important seaweed species and identified up to 200 million hectares of available ocean around Indonesia and Australia. Most of humans' society, what we've built so far, is based mostly on terrestrial plants. And so we're kind of looking at, well, what if we started to farm seaweeds uh, on a large scale, um, converting large swaths of the ocean Um, two seaweed farms. So how much uh, seaweed harvesting is there already? Um, In Indonesia and some parts of Africa, there's lots of seaweed farming that's happening. 
Um, it's still pretty nascent in places like Australia, in the US, in Europe. But what about the potential to displace other marine life or the risk of introducing non-native or invasive weed species of seaweed? Yeah, absolutely. And we should definitely be concerned about that and go through really rigorous processes before we do um, introduce seaweeds. Scott Spilius from the University of Queensland ending Annie Guest's report. Darwin's annual Refugee World Cup soccer tournament is a chance for refugees and migrants to reflect on their struggles to get to and stay in Australia. Many have battled through tough visa application processes, sometimes spending thousands of dollars to make sure they can stay and work here. But yesterday, they were having fun, competing in teams drawn from cultures all around the world, as Jane Barden reports. Darwin Soccer Club Football Without Borders has been running its annual Refugee World Cup for nine years. Billy Torrio is one of the organisers. What it's trying to achieve is getting people from different backgrounds, refugees and migrants, to come together in a day to play sport and enjoy and have fun. What are some of the challenges for people still coming to Australia as refugees? There's a lot of challenges that people are facing. Uh, some of them can be simple, for example, the language, also finding a job. Abu Bakar is playing for Kenya FC. He reflects on how his father from Myanmar went through tragedy after the people smuggler boat he was travelling to Australia in capsized and many of the passengers drowned. We didn't have a contact for about two, three years with him. We thought that we, he had been died or lost. After two years in immigration detention, it cost his father thousands of dollars to bring Abu Bakar and his siblings to Australia. He's now finishing school and wants to be a mechanic. In 2019, my dad has spent a lot of money, like more than $200,000 in Malaysia, but in Australia, around $100,000. He paid to the lawyer and then he bring us here as living in Australia. How have you found the society in Darwin? Here in Darwin, I would say they are always multicultural. Like they welcome everyone, no matter what skin colour you are, what country you are come from. Moses Makuju is playing for the Congolese team. He came to Australia with his mother last year after his father was killed in conflict in Congo. What have some of the biggest challenges been for you and your family? Uh, work. Have you managed to find a job here? Yeah, yeah. I do came out. And did you find that job yourself or did you get help from one of the refugee organisations? No, someone helped me from school. I went Sunday school. Oh, Sunday school? Yeah, Sunday school. I'm making a friend. Australia's cultural diversity is growing. In 2016, just over a quarter of the population was born overseas. Now it's 28%. Many migrants come on student visas and then apply for residency. Jayan Mala, who's playing for the Nepalese team, was able to get an engineering job once he finished university in Darwin. But he says many of his friends find it hard to get skilled work after they graduate. I've seen a couple of my friends who are still doing other jobs rather than doing engineering jobs. It's something Billy Torrio's Football Without Borders is trying to help with. We help them beyond the pitch, you know, with things like uh, your resume and helping them to apply for jobs as well. 17-year-old Divine came to Darwin with her family to escape conflict in Congo. Everyone's really welcoming and very open-minded. 
So, yeah, I think my experience has been pretty good. Playing for the Congolese Queens with her is Janet from Kenya. It's a chance to catch up with friends and make new ones. Because I feel like home now, like I, feel, I see everyone who's come from different places. It's like a comfort zone for me, so yeah. Congolese Queens player Janet speaking with Jane Barden. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. It can write poems, essays and even talk to you. That's why ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence bot, is being banned in schools and unis. Today, AI expert Toby Walsh on how the cutting-edge technology is already changing our lives. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.